Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you all sorts of content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise differently, to leading and managing your team, to thinking about new creative ways or humanistic ways to actually do your work, and finally, to up your game in your scholarly practice. Are you excited yet? I certainly am. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. Hello, Mac PFD Spark listeners. I am really excited to bring you two very, very illustrious, I think, guests is the best way for me to put it. The first of our two guests is Dr. Bernice Downey. Now, Dr. Downey is an internationally renowned speaker, but she is also someone who's been a leader within our local milieu. She is the faculty lead of the Indigenous Health Initiative, and she's been some, doing some groundbreaking work that really is associated with uh, bringing Indigenous health to the forefront of our organization. So it's really, really been a privilege to be able to have a conversation with her and understand better what she's been up to. I think that you'll find what uh, she talks about really, really informative and something that can help you kind of open your eyes to some of the initiatives that are out there right now. The second segment is a segment by Dr. Steve Hanna. He is someone who is the Vice Dean of Graduate Studies in the Health Sciences faculty, and he really brings to the forefront the idea of what graduate supervision is and how to get involved. This is something that some people probably just take for granted that they just do because that's what they've always done. But I think that he has some really cool pearls on how to do it better, how to think about it if you're not doing it right now, and how to get involved in graduate studies here at McMaster University. So listen up. Well, thanks for your interest. When we first met online, as the, uh, the world is all about right now, I could immediately see the connection when I went to the PFD website. Yeah. And so as part of part of the goals for the Indigenous Health Initiative in the educational curriculum is to provide a menu of learning opportunities for clinicians and staff. Yeah, so the Indigenous Health Initiative kind of started with my recruitment in 2017. Mm-hmm. And I was recruited and cross-appointed to the School of Nursing and the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neuroscience. And 50% of my time was as an administrative appointment as an Indigenous health lead for the Faculty of Health Science. And so the goal was for the faculty to respond with a concerted, focused effort to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Yeah, so that started kind of us, you know, collaborating down this path. And uh, initially, I advised the faculty that the first year would really be about building relationships. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that we are very relational people by nature. We like to establish a clear relationship. Oftentimes, Indigenous people, the first question that they'll ask someone else is, where are you from? Because we make that connection to our tribal origins and our land, and it gives people context to understand who you are. The second factor related in that was that Indigenous peoples in this region have been trying to engage with the Faculty of Health Science to identify systems, barriers, and solutions for a long, long time. And without a whole lot of success, I think the main 
bulk of the effort has gone into the social science area, but the need for, you know, focused health approach has been there for a long time. And so trying to compensate for the mistrust and disappointment that has developed over the years for community partners was also an important piece of taking our time, building the relationships and so forth. And the other half of building the relationships, of course, is on campus. For the most part, people are unaware of what the specific impact of colonization was on the health of Indigenous peoples. We have quite a number of different cultural groups represented in the faculty. And if you, you know, are a newcomer to Canada, oftentimes people have never heard of residential schools, for example. And even if you're born in Canada, there is a dearth of information in grade school or secondary school. And a lot of us, you know, come into our profession without having that background as well. So the first year was about building relationships and establishing, you know, my goal was to have a very comprehensive strategy. It had to be more than lip service and it had to be more than incremental or piecemeal. And so I established uh, six different working groups to cover a range of issues. So, you know, we need policy change. So it's important that senior level administrators are aware and engaged. Our steering committee currently is composed of four vice deans in the faculty and a chair, and they are co-leads on a couple of the working groups. So the goal was really to get them to roll up their sleeves and be aware because in order to get anything changed, they have to be educated. And so six working groups were established, one being administration, Another being Indigenous Knowledge, our knowledge, our knowledge Helper Working Group, Education and Curriculum, Research, Student Support and Services, and Faculty Leadership and Support. And so the Faculty Leadership and Support, in keeping with the aspirations of PFD, was established, you know, in order to educate and support non-Indigenous faculty, because typically the response I would get and talking to non-Indigenous faculty is, I don't know if that if this applies to me because one, I'm not Indigenous, and two, I don't I don't think I have any Indigenous students in my class, and I don't teach any Indigenous courses. And so it was a way to give people permission to know about Indigenous health and the socio-historical context, but also to provide teach them skills to become both an individual and an institutional ally. And so Dr. Mark Walton co-chaired that group along with Dr. Karen Hill, who's with the Department of Family Medicine. So established six working groups, started to get this large, unwieldy machine going. So it resulted in a lot of meetings and a lot of work has come out of it. So we, we do have now a final strategic plan that we did a soft launch of in February at our Indigenous Community Health and Research Conference. Our goal is to have the final report released sometime this fall. It was, inter everything was interrupted with COVID. So, and I lost two of my key staff who have transitioned one into medical school. And so I'm, I'm finishing up the report on my own right now. So, you know, a lot of things were achieved through the process, even though it's taken a lot longer than I expected. But relationships have been established. Awareness has increased. You know, interest in integrating curriculum and taking advantage of some of the educational opportunities that we established. 
So we created a bit of a, a menu of educational opportunities. Not everybody learns the same. Not everybody has the same time available to make a commitment. But we started out with a goal of promoting and encouraging people to take the cultural safety training. There were a couple of options that were offered there. One was the Ontario Indigenous Cultural Safety Program, which is eight weeks, very interactive, facilitator-supported, small cohorts. And at the end of the eight weeks, I think the skills building. I know that there's been an evaluation of it. I haven't done one of the folks from the faculty who have done it. We did a survey, but not a full-blown evaluation. But at least it, it prepares them to understand the main concepts, the anti-racism training, the cultural humility, the socio-historical background, how it links to health outcomes today, and so forth. The other option is through Cancer Care Ontario, who have had in place relationship competency modules. I think there's 13 in total. They're, they're free while the ICS was $250 per course, but I think that's gone up to 300 now. But the Cancer Care Ontario, while they're focused on cancer perspective, there's enough content in them that's generic enough to be applied to any, uh, any client. And so they're free. It's a self-learning format. They can stop and start. They can complete, they complete quizzes before moving on to the next next module and then they get a certificate at the end. So we've been trying to fill the gap for some students by, you know, some of the some of the programs have been saying complete first four modules of the Cancer Care Ontario package as a prerequisite for classes. And I'm thinking some health professionals have also been doing that as well. And then the we initially set aside a hundred thousand dollars to start the cultural safety training with ICS for clinicians, all the senior administrators on the executive council for the Faculty of Health Science completed it as well. But as you can surmise, it's a lot of money and we can't continue to do that. So the onus is falling on clinical practitioners to pay for their own training. And the other uh, initiative that we're undertaking that may have some implication for PFD collaboration is we are developing faculty of health science specific cultural safety modules. And so we're just at the beginning of recruiting two consultants, a team that's working together. One is a physician, an indigenous physician, and the other has an arts and education background. So we're getting prepared to harmonize an approach where we establish uh, curriculum in that in those modules that is in keeping with the skills-based training that they need that's similar to ICS and the Cancer Care Ontario approach and harmonizing it with more of an Indigenous integration of Indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing. And so I'm excited about that. It's challenging because they're two very different bodies of knowledge and science, but that is the goal this year, is to raise awareness and co-create space for Indigenous knowledge and ways of healing. It's a big challenge in a health science evidence-based environment to get an acceptance and an uptake of that uh, approach. So that's how the cultural safety packages are situated right now. In addition to that, we've also created a menu of opportunities that include experiential learning. So there's a, a consultant who will come and work with a group and has a variety of ways to help people understand the context of Indigenous health. 
We also have field trips out to the Woodlands Cultural Center, which helps people to understand the Mohawk Institute, which was one of the residential schools in Brantford. That can be anywhere from a half to a full day. And we have a couple of other opportunities and lists of resources, videos, and so forth. So if there's a program that's looking to undertake a more strategic approach to working with their faculty and staff, I will work with them and advise as to, you know, how they should undertake this and move beyond just a piecemeal approach. And that sounds amazing. Yeah, so some of the programs are now at that point. The challenge, of course, is we need more Indigenous faculty. And to be successful and, you know, to start working really more in-depth with the various programs, uh, we need more faculty. So part of our work is also hinged to what is happening across the university as a whole. And most of the Indigenous faculty, like I think there's nine of us in total now, Most of them are in social science and humanities, and the Indigenous Studies program lies within the Faculty of Social Science. And so we have myself that's full-time in the Faculty of Health Science, but I don't teach. I have a teaching release at this time, because in addition to the administrative appointment as the Indigenous Health Lead and the faculty appointment, I also have a chair with the Heart and Stroke and CIHR in Indigenous uh, Women's Heart Health. So I have a teaching release because of that. But the other full-time folks are Ashley Johnson, who's with the Department of Psychiatry, and she was in a faculty, Indigenous faculty advisor position that has transitioned out of that role. And as a new clinician, is working more directly with our Indigenous community partners and, you know, trying to get her herself established as a psychiatrist. Dr. Amy Montour is situated as a faculty, full-time faculty in the Department of Family Medicine. She's well known to McMaster. She graduated from nursing and then medicine, and she's a palliative care specialist, and she's also the director out at the Grand Erie Six Nations Center, which works in partnership with Brantford General Hospital and is another Department of Family Medicine initiative. So Amy, through the Grand Dairy Six Nations mandate and our Indigenous Health Initiative are going to collaborate and are in the midst of a collaborative agreement, which will focus on education of Department of Family Medicine residents and to also reduce the burden in a limited capacity environment so that we're not reinventing the wheel with every Indigenous entity across campus, right? The implementation of the Indigenous Health initiative is the establishment of the learning lodge. And so the priorities in each of those six working groups will be reflected in the implementation of the lodge. We'll be enhancing the structure. We'll be recruiting an associate dean of Indigenous health. That's underway right now. And also merging the Indigenous Students Health Science Office into the learning lodge. And so ISHIS, as it is known, has been around for 10 years plus. And as you may be aware, their their mandate has been about supporting Indigenous students. And because there was no cross-faculty, uh, there was no Indigenous health initiative, they've kind of been, you know, the one-stop shop that have did not have the mandate to address some of the other systemic barriers, change policy, etc., but are well-known and have been available as a resource to various programs. 
And so that work will continue, but will all be housed within the learning lodge and then developing these external hubs. And so the Grand Erie Six Nations uh, Center is the first one. But we also hope to establish uh, Mac Care, which is another DFM initiative. We have plans for a global external hub because we work with partners, our Maori partners in New Zealand, for example, and an urban Indigenous hub through Dwada Desney and missing one. Oh, the traditional practitioners who worked with us to guide the work, we call them the Knowledge Helpers Group, they indicated an interest, even when the strategic planning was completed, to remain involved with the learning lodge. And so they're interested in, in how we integrate information about Indigenous health into the curriculum. You know, they want to participate in various activities. A couple of them have been involved in education for a very long time. And so they're just naturally interested uh, to stay involved. And the establishment of the Indigenous health curriculum into various programs is a lot of work. You know, I've really discovered that that's where uh, the rubber hits the road, right? Well, two areas, finances, and then, and then curriculum. Yes. So, you know, curriculum is, curriculum development or, you know, enhancement is really where, you know, you start to understand that, yeah, this is a new pedagogy. This is a, an established, valid body of knowledge. And you're trying to convince folks who have spent many, many years within a Western Eurocentric evidence-based knowledge space um, that there is something else. And so then the tensions begin. And it's been interesting, but fulfilling to know, because my my area of focus with my dissertation was about harmonizing systems in health. And so it's it's gratifying to know that, yeah, you can you can deal with the tension and you can come out on the other side with a new understanding. Given time and respecting other people's positions on things, but also uh, a certain measure of asserting our self-determination. And so if, you know, if we have established, which we have, that the Indigenous Health Initiative is a truth and reconciliation response, then what follows is accepting principles that were identified to implement the calls to action. They're very specific, and of course, they uphold under the principle of nothing for us without us, the self-determining aspect of reform work. And so I've had to use that card a couple of times, I will admit, to remind people of that and to just accept that the Indigenous expertise that we have will get us there. Now, mind you, in the curriculum development in this, in the education realm, we also promote that we will be respectful and uphold the need that programs have to ensure that they're meeting the requirements of their various regulatory bodies and accreditation sources. And so it is trying to achieve that balance. But the good news there is that even, you know, since five years ago, while institutions might be working with a few Indigenous leaders to make these changes, the regulatory bodies were not. But we're further down that path now. And so, you know, concern for clinicians was, okay, so if I'm working with a patient who is taking some type of traditional medicine, am I going to lose my license if I condone that or even listen to it, you know, or how does it interact with the medications that they take that I'm prescribing? So now 
they can be reassured the regulatory bodies that they have to answer to are also engaged in this reform. And so that makes life a little bit easier for programs to adapt. So it is interesting. And, you know, as we stick with it and move forward, eventually things are falling into place so that we can realize the changes. The resources are challenging area too. So as I mentioned, there is a cross-campus effort to refresh a strategy overall on Indigenous education. So that's been underway for almost a year now, and I've been participating in that with my colleagues. And we've tabled an Indigenous education and research plan to the new president, who was the provost before. And sometimes it's all about the champions too, right? So if they have experience, you know, working with Indigenous peoples or some type of reform work, and they come to the table with that, that's a lot of your work done. If they don't, then, you know, one of the best pieces of advice that I learned from David Newhouse, who's the uh, longtime director at Trent University of the Indigenous Studies Program. And Dr. Newhouse said that every senior administrator who moves on or who arrives into the chair of somebody moved on, who has moved on, you have to educate them. Otherwise, everything goes back, you know, the reset button doesn't get pushed. Anyway, so this plan is rolling out. They're aware and, you know, I've been participating. But with COVID, so we already had a restricted financial situation within the Faculty of Health Science over this past year, changes provincially and so forth. And then with COVID hitting, you know, more challenges as priorities change as well. So what we need to is to establish a solid uh, financial base for the Learning Lodge. And, you know, a key priority is, is hiring Indigenous faculty, attracting them and hiring them. So that's where we're at. We're beginning to implement activities where we can, working with the programs, the emphasis is on the curriculum development. And as I mentioned, the focus for me is to continue the education of our faculty in ways that are accessible to them and to help them move forward on this path and have some experiential learning opportunities and some provocative ones that, you know, help them to shift their thinking a little bit, right? And so, yeah, so I'm thinking that that's, you know, what interests me in thinking about a collaboration with PFD. All right. Okay. I'm going to stop and pause the the recording, but I'm going to say that's amazing work. And I think that you've done like such a phenomenal job as a woman, as a leader, as, as a scholar that you've risen to the occasion and put it all together, obviously with friends and colleagues and, and lots of stakeholders, but that you have the leadership and foresight, like just knowing the story behind this is such a great story to, to share with everyone. I thank you for that. Well, thank you. I, um, you know, I always like through my career, I always wondered how I got into certain places, you know, but I resolved to return to graduate school after working at the national level in Indigenous health policy and research. So I was the executive director with the Indigenous Nurses Association. And then I was the chief executive officer of the National Aboriginal Health Organization. And in both those situations, I could see where the gap was. And so, you know, while many of my colleagues across the country are, you know, have tackled this area of reform, you know, we had the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People. We had various initiatives that just just kind of collected dust on shelves and it was never realized. But returning to graduate school for me was an important exercise to 
have the ability and the credibility to try to affect change. And so I chose health literacy. I chose systems reform and I chose medical anthropology because I could see no one in health science that could help me. It was a good choice because it allowed me to marry the health science background that I had, but also to delve into that cultural perspective around health and well-being for Indigenous peoples. And it, and it was a very, I had a lot of latitude to do that, which I wouldn't have had if I'd been in health science. So it all, it, it worked out. I also, you know, had opportunities at McMaster to engage in the development of the McMaster Indigenous Research Institute. So, yeah, it's been a long career about systems reform. But, yeah, I'm proud of it. I'm confident I could not have done it without Paulo Byrne, Susan Denberg, Alan Neville. Folks that have been around for a while have been trying to get this off the ground. But until you really have the commitment of the person at the top, right, it's only going to happen incrementally. And Dean O'Byrne, you know, has been in there, you know, and he has said to me more recently, Denise, you know, I can't tell you how much I've learned and, you know, he feels comfortable now. You know, he feels he's in a place where he has some awareness and knows what needs to happen next. And he's he's confident when he talks now in his circles, right? So that's a big shift. You know, I think that's been a huge part of the momentum. And, you know, I remember saying to him at the beginning, I said, Paul, you know, I want a comprehensive, polished product at the end. And if I can't have that, then I'm moving on because... I'm at the, I'm almost at the end of my career. I don't have, you know, I'm not really concerned about losing my job. I, you know, I, but I don't want to waste my time. Right. And so, 100%. Yeah, yeah. And, so he, and so you're, you're right. Said, I'm with you. I want the same thing. And you need so the, you need the person at the top, but you need someone who's a mover and shaker like yourself to be empowered yeah. to go and do it. And now what you're saying is that we need more movers and shakers, more people who yeah. can be on the ground at that implementation level, because just like policy and then reality have a gap, just like science and reality have a gap, right? We, I think both are forms of knowledge translation or, you know, in my, in my world, I just call it education. <laughs> but like, I think that there's always a gap between that, those high level documents, whether they're a policy guideline, whether they're a um, new piece of evidence in the scientific way, there's a gap that needs to be closed because the people that are doing the work, they know the work inside out. But the people on the front lines, the people that are doing the day-to-day, going about their lives, yeah. worrying about whether or not their kids are online and, and on time for school, fitting into their lives, I think, is the challenge. So yeah. thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And, I mean, there's other champions like Nick Cates in psychiatry, Sandra Carroll in nursing. You know, when you do have that lead champion, the work really does take off. Wow, that was a really awesome first segment of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. And now, on to our second segment. Hello, everyone. My name is Tracy Chan, and you know me from this podcast by now. And I'd like to introduce you to a new friend of mine. His name is Steve Hanna, and my first memory of meeting Steve was going to him because I needed some help with a project that eventually got published, and he was the contact that we reached out to for some advice. And I don't know if he even remembers this, but I came to your office one time with Matt Mercury. We like asked you about like multi-level regression because we were both puzzled by it, and you said, "Oh yeah, everything that you did seems to make sense." And you know, in that case, I was a research apprentice because Matt was teaching me how to do stuff. And you know, we've come full circle. Now I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself, but then like really the context 
premise of this is that I wanted to have a great conversation with you about that exact thing. Like, how do you apprentice up someone else in research? So you want to introduce yourself? He has too many titles, you see. So I need to I am happy to introduce myself. <laughs> I'm very happy to do it for you. It's no problem. So first of all, let me say I'm glad that whatever conversation we had with, with you and Matt was helpful. And you mm-hmm. got something published. So that's mm-hmm. great. So that's the first clue about me. You came to me for statistical advice because around here I teach uh, biostatistics and do research in biostatistics. My primary appointment is in what's now called HEI, mm-hmm. Health Research Methods, Evidence and Impact. And I have to always try to remember to say that because I can't <laughs> remember what it stands for. Where I'm one of the biostatisticians. And so uh, people come to me just as you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, my most recent role, I, I ran the HRM graduate program as the assistant dean for HRM for eight and a half years. Mm-hmm. So I got very intensely interested in graduate programs and research supervision through that role. And since last July of 2019, I have been the vice dean of, and of health sciences and associate dean of graduate studies for health sciences. So I have an administrative role precisely about graduate studies. And that's, um, I think, what you want to talk to me about today. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that like, whether it's graduate supervision or supervising any colleague or helping any colleague out with a project, it probably has some core elements as to why people do it, right? So whether it's a med student that wants to do a project with you or a graduate student you're going to have as a PhD student for a number of years, like why do people get into that kind of stuff? Because you could just go and do work on your own, I guess. But most people (laughs) end up having some graduate supervision responsibilities in FHS at some level. There's lots of ways to be involved with graduate students, only one of which is thesis research, supervi- research thesis supervision. Okay. Um, you can be involved in graduate teaching. There's other kinds of projects that you could supervise, things like internships or practicum placements, things with a little yeah. less commitment than taking on a, a thesis research. Or scholarly thing. papers. I think some Schol- of the scholarly yeah. paper is a great role. So there's lots of ways to be involved. And so there's yeah. lots of reasons, I, th- I would mm-hmm. say. I guess what I would just take, do is take your question and sort of say, most of us have jobs with educational responsibilities. So mm-hmm. usually the question isn't, why graduate students it's why graduate students instead of something else or in addition to something else and Mm -hmm. I think you know there's a number of reasons for most of the faculty you know it's a chance to work with obviously the chance to work with enthusiastic young people on something you care about is always energizing particularly for me I've been around here a long time and sometimes my research interests can get a little stale sometimes and I need a little jump start and working with an enthusiastic young collaborator on something is hugely invigorating for me and you're working at a higher level that's one of the reasons that's appealing for people you're working at a higher level Certainly, it's great to be working with undergraduate students, undergrad thesis, BHSC students. Many people in the faculty are doing clinical training where they're working on those things. But you're working with a student at this point who's a master's or PhD student who's at a higher level. You're able to work at a higher level. And you, so you're making it a difference at something that's, that sort of goes beyond the fundamentals. And that's very appealing for a lot of people. Now, specifically about research supervision, the number one re- reason that you want to be involved in supervising a thesis student, which is more of a commitment is that you're a researcher with an active research program yourself, usually in a research-oriented position, but certainly you have an active research program, and you want to contribute to education in ways that also advance your research program. That's why people want to do this work. Kind of like multiple wins, right? Like the idea of you're aligning it. Exactly right. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. So, and that's what these, these, these students, when they do good work, if you help them do good work, they will publish that work. They're advancing your program. They're helping you move your own thing forward. And you have the side bonus that you're developing professionals. This is maybe a little bit vain. But you're developing professionals in, in your research tradition who are learning some of your priorities for the discipline. And you send them out into the world with that when they're done. So you're kind of changing the discipline a little bit in your own image. Now that doesn't always last. 
sometimes that's an illusion that, you know, they get ideas of their own, but there is a lot of appeal for people with their own research programs yeah. in terms of advancing their point of view. Yeah, it's kind of uh, like, I, I make a lot of analogies with comic books, but it's like when Iron Man takes Spider-Man under his wing and in the Avengers movies, right? Like he gets to teach him how to be a superhero for a little bit. And yes, he will get his own way and Tony Stark's not always there for him, but yeah. along the way you can make a difference and, and be uh, part of someone's formative part of their journey, which is... Which is, I, did not, I mean, it's a great weight of responsibility. You know, like Uncle Ben says, if with, with great, <laughs> with great, what is the saying? If with great power comes great responsibility, right? So I think that that, that kind of blurs us maybe onto the, the next part, right? Like, like, who do you usually recruit to do research supervision? I mean, there's obviously people are looking to, to, to build this legacy a little bit here and right. there. So I'll preface this by saying that at McMaster, as in every research intensive school in Canada, probably, if you want to be involved as a supervisor of, of, of a graduate student, a thesis student, thesis supervisor, that, that you need to apply for permission to do that. And so it's the Dean of Graduate Studies who delegates those permissions, usually to me as an Associate Dean. So what the kinds of things we look for in judging whether or not somebody is suitable and, and the kinds of things that a faculty member should think about is first and foremost, do I have a full-time appointment at McMaster of some kind? So normally you'll have to have a full-time appointment at Mac in a research intensive position or at least some dedicated time for research. So that can be a bit of a challenge. So for example, it's not normally the case that faculty in the teaching track will be involved in thesis supervision. Sometimes they're approved for other kinds of roles, but not usually as the, a student's primary supervisor. So you have a research program, a funded research program, a bunch of things that people can work on. So at a full-time appointment, so you're going to be around and usually not a contractual limited appointment. And the reason this is important is that you want to have somebody, I mean, anything could happen. Somebody could, well, you, I, could you know, I could always leave the university, but whenever possible, we want to have folks who are going to be around long enough to see the student through the program. So for master's students, you know, we hope they're done in two years, but it might be three. It might be longer. We, yeah, exactly. Keep your fingers crossed. PhD program normally is four years. It might be five. If it takes a long time, unfortunately, it might be six. We, we need you to be around for the whole period. So normally that's full-time faculty with a research program of their own. And one of the things that really helps is if you have some experience with the culture of research supervision at Mac, and that can be a challenge if you're a new faculty member, but also if you're a clinician and maybe you have some research that you want to do and you have time to do it. One of the things we look for is, do you have a sense, do you have some experience with the culture of supervision and what the expectations are? Right. So that's a thing that, that if your folks are looking to get into graduate supervision, that's a thing to start thinking about is how am I going to get that kind of experience? Mm. Uh, do I know a program well enough? Do I know, do I have a feel for what the expectations are? And we can talk a little bit about how to get that experience. There's another piece that's probably important to, I guess, to think about, which is most full-time students will require some kind of financial support because we want them to be able to focus on school and not on having to work on the side. So, Depending on the program, you may have to be able to contribute some amount to uh, the student stipend. And you need to think about whether you can do that and whether you're willing. Most of the time, that money comes from a research grant that you have, which is why we usually do this with research or intensive faculty. Of course, those research intensive faculty then have the funds to be able to support a student. So the student doesn't have to work. And also research and the faculty, of course, have the kind of clinical skills, the methodological expertise that they can bring to the supervisory problem. And so the primary supervisor is normally expected to contribute some amount of money toward that stipend, not the whole thing, but some amount. And so that's a, you know, questions are, are, are you able, are in a position to do that is one of the things to ask yourself. And where would you get that? 
that money. So those are yeah. sort of some considerations. Yeah, um, fair enough. If that helps. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that you ha- kind of have to know how to do the job before you're there and you have to have the resources. And, it, and maybe, I'm, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm kind of like cutting to the chase here, but I think the, the hardest part is actually learning how to do the job, right? So I think you've touched on, I mean, I, I didn't mean to quite say that, but I think it's probably true to some degree. I mean, I, I think this is the, always the sort of contradiction is how do I, how, am I ready and how do I get the experience without doing it? Yeah. So I, I don't think that's quite the case. I think, so we can talk about different, different roles you might have. So a primary supervisor is the student's main supervisor, and that's a role you would come on, be prepared to take the commitment, contribute to the stipend, and, and maybe have a little experience before you do that. But you could also sit on a supervisory committee. So every mm, student okay. who has who has uh, is doing a thesis have to have a supervisory committee, mm-hmm. which is for both masters and PhD at least three people: supervisor plus two committee members. Those two committee members are often chosen because they have some clinical expertise that would be relevant, but also they have some methodological expertise. And sitting as a member of the committees is a bit less of a, a commitment rather than being the student's primary supervisor. So I often recommend that. If you can be approved along those lines, we can get you working on committees for a couple of students to get a feel for it, get a sense of what the culture is like, all, the, the, all those things that we just talked about. It's a great way to get going. And you still benefit from working with graduate students and being involved in their work and advancing your research interests. And then at some point, fairly, hopefully fairly soon, you want to, you'll be ready to take on a student for yourself. Yeah, it's like apprenticing into being a research supervisor. There's a there's a pathway. So that's really I think cool. there is. I remember my graduate supervisor, not at this school, at uh, University of Illinois Chicago, Matt Linebury. I was his his first where he was the true supervisor because he sat on a bunch of committees. And so, but he fell right into I think uh, being a great supervisor because a he's a great guy, but also b I think that because he done the apprenticeship. He sat in other committees. He'd watch like a hawk and looked at what it would work. And you don't have to do exactly the way that other people do it, but you can, again, apprentice in a little bit and learn how someone else does it and then improve on it when you're the person that's in the, the hot seat, I guess. I think you're right. I think particularly as academics, I'm not a clinician, right? Yeah. And there's a, there's a clinician phase, a phrase, I think, see one, do one, teach one. Isn't that a thing? <laughs> yeah, we're trying we, to get rid of that. <laughs> we're, you're trying to get rid of that. So I think yeah. there's something analogous here that happens to us in the sense that we get thrown into these things sometimes. And, and some of us swim and mm-hmm. some of us need a little more instruction and mentorship. And it's always possible to find more experienced mm-hmm. folks who can mentor you and mm-hmm. sort of you can sit down and talk about, you know, it comes more naturally to some people than others. And it's mm-hmm. ultimately it may work out really, really well. Your, your experience was that this was a new person who, who, who swum. He was, he took to it like a doctor water and did a great mm-hmm. job. A lot of people need a little more, a little more guidance and mm-hmm. we can help you arrange that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's, I, I called it in a blog post a long time ago when I started mentoring med students actually with a mentor on board. I think that's how I cut my teeth with the, before I learned how to gra- supervise graduate students, like lower stakes, smaller projects with some of our med students because they have some side, side gig time. And I was mentoring from the middle. So I had a mentor, John Sherboneau, and he would mentor me as I was mentoring them. And that's how I learned. It's, it's cool to do that, I think, because it, so the, it's the like being thing, a senior resident. <laughs> if you're a clinician, it's like, yeah. you know, like you're not quite the attending yet. And it's nice to have someone you can look over the shoulder and be like, hey, how would you handle that? What should I do here? And it's nice, right? Like that's like the, how we build a community of practice around something is that you start off just an apprentice and then you apprentice into being a more senior apprentice. And then at the end of it, you're at the core of it and you're one of the, one of the people. 
Well, the other, the other part of the analogy that you made to being a resident is important. Residents are in the hospital system. They're, they're getting a feel for the culture. They're getting a feel mm-hmm. for the operations without necessarily being completely responsible for everything, or at mm-hmm. least maybe, you know, that's the goal. Yeah. Um, I think there's something analogous here. So one of the things I would say is most people are not, they're going to want to choose one or two programs. We have like, I don't know, I think I counted 18 programs in the yeah. faculty of health sciences that one could choose to be involved in. I think it's really helpful if you are involved in the program in a number of other ways, in addition to supervision. So you do a little course teaching or you, as you say, read scholarly papers or sit on admissions committees, that you have a little knowledge of the culture of the program and you've had some exposure to the students at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I always say, also, we can't, you know, if people aren't willing to do some of the other work, like teaching and sitting on admissions committees, then they can't supervise because there's no mm-hmm. one to supervise. We have to get students in. So mm-hmm. it really is those two th- kinds of things work well together. So the mm-hmm. best approach, I think, is to get really interested in one or two programs mm-hmm. that you want to become involved with mm-hmm. and get involved in them in a number of different ways. And that will help you get a sense of the culture and it makes it much easier when you supervise yeah. a student. For sure. I mean, I think that each scientific discipline or subdiscipline sometimes within has their own culture as well, right? So lab-based medicine will be different than if you're a clinical researcher, different from a health systems researcher, different from an education researcher. And we have all of those programs here. So there's a huge diversity. And we'll be talking to different people along the way to get their jive on how they, you know, do their their job from from time to time as part of our scholarly secrets program so all right so the we've talked about the why we've talked about the who and can you give me the nuts and bolts of the of the how so if someone was truly interested in and they think they have the qualifications they've had the apprenticeship maybe they're coming in from another shop and or they wanted to expand into a different grad studies program because they've they've got their sea legs under them. What can they do? How how do they go about it? So the first thing you do is, I mean, the chair of your department is always going to be somebody you're supposed to talk about uh, sort of academic counseling about and what your plans are. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly anybody who wants to understand what programs are available, if you're brand new, you can always contact me also to get oriented a little bit. But what, you know, the the first thing to do, if you, if you know you want to be involved in supervision, any particular program is to contact the director of that program. Mm -hmm. So all these programs have either assistant deans or program directors. And that's the person who who will be able to tell you about the program, what the opportunities are, a little bit about, for example, how much money might be required for you to contribute because it varies from program to program. So the details really matter. So contact the head of that program. And we have a list of those folks on the Health Sciences Graduate Studies website, or you can contact our office and we can point you in the right direction. Talk to that, those folks and find a little bit about what the opportunities are and whether your interests really are right for that program. You know, I will say that oftentimes your particular research interest might fit well in more than one program. You can do the same kind of thesis in the medical sciences graduate program as you can in the biochemistry graduate program and sometimes in the biomedical engineering graduate program or the chemical biology graduate program. You might do very similar kind of work, but the students are a little bit different. The curriculum's different. And you can get a sense of that by talking to a program head. Then there is, if you want to be involved in supervision, the program heads will help you submit a form to my office that outlines what permission you're seeking, okay, for master's or PhD and for what programs. And then the program director has to sign that recommendation. The chair of your department has to sign it. And then it comes to my office. Uh, You can send, they can send it to the health sciences graduate studies office and it will make its way to me. And so I'm delegated to make those permissions on behalf of the Dean of Graduate Studies. And, you know, if you fit along the lines that we're, we already talked about, it is normally no problem, but it does have to be approved by your chair. 
so that the chair of the department knows where your energy is going and, and uh, can talk to you about it if they need to. All right. That's great. That's, uh, I think you just explained something that was a mystery to me for many years in like less than a minute. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> All I didn't need to do was talk to you apparently. <laughs> Okay. So, so that, that is true. All you do need to do is talk to me. And oftentimes if you're not certain, I'm happy to talk to people about it. One of the things I do in this role a lot is actually I have to be involved a lot in selection committees and interviews when people get hired. And it means that I I have these talks with folks a lot Mm -hmm. about where they want to contribute and and whether or not it would be possible for them to supervise. And so I do it already and I'm happy to do it for anybody who contacts us. Great. Uh, that is really part of the culture of Mac. So just for those who are new to the culture or haven't yet applied to be faculty here, you know, you're listening from another shop and you're thinking where you want to go next. One of the best things is that you can literally email a vice dean and get him on a podcast. You can uh, show up at his office and be like, hey, I don't understand this regression analysis. He'll take your time. We have such a welcoming culture here. And I'm not just tooting our horn. Like, it really is this way. Like, everyone keeps telling me that it was the case when I was junior faculty. It's not until I got to this role that I realized that it's actually the case and that it wasn't just all smoke and mirrors that people were saying that it was approachable. People are truly truly approachable i can tell you on the other side of it and as someone who has taken advantage of that i would say that others should consider it too because sometimes it really is just a you know a zoom link away that you could have like something that literally i honestly steve struggled for like years to understand the whole mechanism and you literally explained it in two minutes so well that's great news i'm glad that's true yeah, and so, so we, we put on a podcast so that now you can explain it to everyone <laughs> in one go. You can just send them the link to this podcast eventually. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I will, I will say, I mean, I've worked a lot in grad studies over, over at Mac and it's been a fantastic experience and I'm really proud and, and happy to be in this role. I feel like my involvement with graduate students is kind of the most rewarding thing I do professionally. Mm. And I would encourage folks who are listening to, to find out if it's right for them because it really is a huge way to make a difference for the things you care about. Mm-hmm. And it's been great. I've been, I love it here. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. It's been amazing and awesome to chat with you. You're very welcome. Thanks, Teresa. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.